last week, if you were with us, uh, Ted Howe preached, and he referred to this book right here from Bonhoeffer. I'll say more about this in a moment. And it's a devotional. And I will tell you, I am, it's an Advent devotional. I'm, I'll tell you, I'm not really one for devotionals myself. I don't know what it is. Um, maybe it's because I just don't like being told what to do from day to day. I, I like doing things my way. And so having a devotional that has a little bit of scripture, a little bit of a commentary, I, it, it just hasn't caught on. But Ted referred to this little book right here uh, from uh, Bonhoeffer, and I don't know if you, you're familiar with this name. You've probably heard it. I know I've referred to him. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a uh, Lutheran pastor in the German Confessing Church in the 1930s. Um, he is uh, well known for his book on discipleship that, uh, that quotes, if anyone, um, uh, when God calls a man, he, he bids him come and die. Perhaps you've heard that one. That comes from uh, Bonhoeffer. In the Confessing Church, he was part of a movement actually to take out Hitler uh, in the 1940s. It was, it was uncovered. He ended up being killed off just weeks before the uh, Allied uh, forces overtook Germany in 1945. I had the privilege back in 2019 with Justine. We went to uh, Buchenwald concentration camp near Weimar, and there's a, you could see where he was held before he was taken on and, and his life was taken. So Anyways, I have been fascinated with Bonhoeffer for years, and when, and when Ted referred to this book, I said, fine, Ted, I'll read it. So uh, I'm happy to report to you that I'm on day seven. And uh, there's a statement in here uh, from day three, I think it's day three, it's day four, day four that I had read, and it was a jarring statement about how we should think about the Christmas season and how we tend to think of it and how we should think of it. We'll have it up on the screen for you. Let me read it here. It's Bonhoeffer says, We have become so accustomed to the idea of divine love and of God's coming at Christmas. Think of the songs we just sang. Think about how you felt as we sang them. That we no longer feel the shiver of fear. Did anybody feel a shiver of fear in the songs that we just sang? I'm curious. Think about that. That God's coming should arouse in us. We are indifferent to the message, taking only the pleasant and agreeable out of it and forgetting the serious aspect that the God of the world draws near to the people of our little earth and lays claim to us. Lays claim to us. We have most of us have gone through a Christmas Advent season, and we know that there's that subversive aspect to the king coming humbly in the manger. We know that subversive act that Christ does as king is not, he comes not in the way that you would expect. But when you see his humility, don't forget his might. I think that's what Bonhoeffer's getting at here. Don't forget his might and that he lays claim to you. And so what I want to do in three passages out of John, three sermons out of three passages in John 1, 1 through 18, is that we wouldn't forget his might over this Advent season. Do me a favor and turn to John 1, 1 in your Bible. John is the fourth gospel. In the springtime, in the wintertime and springtime earlier this year, we went through the last half of John, and now we're going to what's called the prologue of John. So that's page uh, 1053, if you need a pew Bible, we're in John 1.1, 1, 1, and we want to see really in this season 
the one who has come for us in his complete identity and how he therefore lays claim to us. So John 1, 1 begins this way, and we'll go to verse 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so let us see this one who is revealed, the origin and nature of the Word, His eternality, how He creates His life in the light of the Word, who is the light of the world. We'll look at each of these five descriptions in turn. And here's what I want you to know. Unless you can see who God is apart from you, you will never understand the importance of what God has done for you. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, by your Spirit, we ask you to take what may be familiar for some of us, and you would help us to be able to marvel. Take us up into your atmosphere to understand what we can't see on our own power. Lord, let what we see there then shine on what we're going through right now in our lives. Father, we thank you because you have sent the word. The word has become flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen him. So we ask, Lord, that these huge realities, oh Lord, would Bethesda not take them for granted in these moments. Do what we can't do on our own. Show us the significance. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I just said this, I used a word a moment ago called the prologue. John 1, 1 through 18 is the prologue to John. In other words, this is the lens through which you see this, you get it right, you're going to see the rest of John. If you don't get it right, you're going to miss the rest of John. And so as we read, and as some of the things I just read here, if you are familiar with John, you'll go, okay, that's familiar. I read in John 1, 1 through 5 some, some words like life and word and darkness and, and life. And, and you know, if you've read John, those things come up again all throughout the gospel. And so this right here is the setup to John. So if, for nothing else, aside from Advent and what we're in right now, hopefully this will, you can see this as, as, as getting tools for understanding this gospel as you'll read it in the coming year. And so we're going to go through five steps here. The first one, look at verse one. The origin and nature of the word. In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. So that first phrase right there, there's three phrases. In the beginning was the word. He is, this word is pre-existent. In the beginning, Mark's gospel goes back to the prophets. Matthew's gospel goes back all the way to Abraham. Luke's gospel, his genealogy goes all the way back to Adam. But John goes to the beginning before time. And so it echoes, if you are familiar with the beginning of your Bible, Genesis 1.1. And so we have, in the beginning was the Word, but Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so you see there is an intentional parallel here between the first created act, the first thing God does, and what is happening right here. God created in the beginning, but now we're told the Word was in the beginning. And that Word... What is that all about? Why use such 
Don't let, don't let the familiarity of it to you, this word, don't let that make you move beyond the strangeness of picking this word, word, as the first thing to introduce somebody with. What does that word mean? Well, there was a pre-existing understanding of this word, so next slide if we have it, is this word, the, the word behind it is logos, or logos. And the Greeks and the Hebrews had different understandings of logos. And so if you would have been a Greek, you would have been familiar. Uh, Malcolm Yarnell, he's my professor, talks about how there's different understandings in the, uh, amongst the Greek philosophers. We won't go into them. You're welcome. Um, the Platonists, the Stoics, Neoplatonists, others. But the idea was that logos meant reason, concept, Okay. And it came up in different forms according to these different philosophers. Reason, it was an intellectual concept and in how it may have bridged between man and the gods or man and some sort of higher understanding of things. But for the Hebrews, that's the Greeks, for the Hebrews, they would have understood this word and they would have understood it as God's creative power. So you've got the Greeks on the one hand, you've got the Hebrews on the others, the Jews, there would have been a creative emphasis to this understanding of the word, word, logos. See, when God decrees something, it always happens. It always comes in the past. You read Genesis 1, and what do you see at the beginning of each of the six days of creation? What do you see? And God said, right? And God said, when he speaks, the universe is created. I like the way one scholar puts it. We can assume that if a Jew were to read this, a Gentile were to read this, or a Greek, that when John says these words here, they would have resonated with both Jew and Gentile. The Jew will remember that by the word of the Lord, there were, were the heavens made. The Greeks will think of the rational principle of which all natural laws and particular expressions exist. So both agree, in their own way, that logos, this concept, or this power, is at the start starting point of all things. You with me so far? Okay, we, we made it through that. But consider how John's using it here. He takes the word logos and he loads it with his own understanding. He moves beyond in the prologue, you'll see, even as it comes forward in the rest of the gospel. He infuses that word logos with a personal dimension. And you begin to see, which becomes more clear in verse 14 and then verse 17, the outline of a person, not just a concept, not just a power that exists, a person. And so in the beginning, at the start of all things, was the Word. I like the way the NLT says it. New Living Translation says, and the Word of God already existed. So don't make the mistake to think that he was created, that there was when the sun was not, or he began to exist at the beginning of time or sometime in eternity past. John is making clear that before all things existed, he was. And we're then told in that second phrase, if in the beginning was the word, second phrase, and the word was with God. This preexistent word that existed before all creation is distinct from God and he's next to him, with God. He has, a be, he has a unique relationship. So is the outline beginning to become more clear? We don't just have a concept. We just, don't just have a power. We have a person who is distinct 
from God. You ask the question then, okay, well, who is God? And you go, Aaron, look down at your Bible. It's pretty clear. Don't we all know who God is in this room? But let me ask, are we talking about God generally, or are we talking about God the Father? That makes a difference in how you read this, right? Is this God the Father who is with the Word, or is this God generally? In the New Testament, I would argue, uh, based on how you read John, every single time God is mentioned, except for two times in the Gospel of John, it is referring to God the Father. And this Word will speak about how this God is His Father. So here's the point. God in John is God the Father. So what I want to do right here is I want to sum this all up and say, so far we have this personal God, personal Word who existed before all things, and He's distinct from God the Father, and He's with God the Father. Gets better. So let's keep going. Next phrase. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, distinct. And the Word was God. What about that, though? See, Aaron, didn't you just say a moment ago that this word is distinct from God, and yet that last phrase in verse 1 says, he is God. How can they yet be both? How can you have distinctness and yet sameness? So here's what we know in John. When you read it, you will see that this word will say, this logos will say, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. He will say, I and the Father are one. I am doing the work of my Father. There's a sameness that exists, and yet there's that distinctiveness. It is not the Father who becomes flesh and dwells among us. It is not the Father who goes to the cross and dies for the sin of all of you and of me. So here's what we can say. trying to describe biblical realities while bending human language. The Word shares the same divine nature as His Father. They have the same godness in common, and yet they have personal distinctions from one another. Sameness and yet distinctiveness. And it is here in the first verse. You can't get out of the first verse, and you see a window into the inner life of the triune God from eternity past. And you have Though there are three, we have the first two, the Father and this Word that is being described, who eternally exist in unity together, fully possessing the same divine nature, and yet are distinct from one another in their personal properties. I believe in one God, the Father, Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, creator of all things seen and unseen. And I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made. That's from the Nicene Creed. And we'll consider, so that, by the way, the Nicene Creed just doesn't just pop out out of, out of the sky. It is derived from what we see right here in John 1.1. We'll look at the Nicene Creed more fully in the coming weeks. But this is what we get in the very first verse. And so I know I've spent the last, how long was that? That was about 15 minutes or so telling you about John 1, 1 and the Word who is all of these things. And I'm doing my best to describe these biblical realities. And I'm trying to use placeholder words like nature and person to do all of this. And perhaps if you have followed me, 
by divine providence, you followed me so far, you, your mind might be hurting. Maybe some of us are asking, okay, so what was the point of all of that? And it is here where I return to that quote that I gave right before I prayed at the beginning of this message. Unless you understand who God is apart from yourself, you will never understand the importance of what God has done for you. Let me show you how this fits together. Imagine having a deep question that you have been seeking the answer to for a long time, and it is answered by someone who has a lesser understanding than you. Have you ever found yourself in a situation like this? I have. Perhaps you've been in a classroom setting. You've been studying some concept in a class you've been in, and you've been wrestling with it. You read a book, you do some research over here, and you come to the class finally, and you go to your teacher and you say, I have a question, and you finally articulate that question. You give it out to him, and then the class know-it-all sitting over to the side says, he chimes in or she chimes in and says, well, they answer your question. And as they answer they're not saying anything that you don't already know. And you go, thanks, I came here for the professor, not for you. Okay? Maybe, maybe, maybe you found yourself in an unproductive situation like this. Or perhaps you're a parent. You're a parent and you've been sharing your parenting woes to your single friend or to someone who doesn't have kids, whatever. And you've been talking about how you've been staying up late at night and how you've been uh, being woken up in the middle of the night by your, your kid who is crying. And anyways, you have that friend. And they chime in. And they say, well, all you need to do is, and you go, thank you for that parenting advice I didn't need. Right? Right? Or perhaps you're single and you want to get married and you don't know what's been going on with you. You've been wrestling through this. You no longer want to be single. And your other single friend, who has had no success, by the way, more success than you have, in trying to not be single, trying to come up with a relationship of their own, you share your burden with them, and they chime in, and they say, well, all you need to do is, and you go, thanks for nothing, right? By the way, you don't need the Bible for this. Your friend, if you're single in this room, and you're seeking to be married, just common, uh, common sense tells you, don't take the advice of someone who has been un as unsuccessful as you have been, okay? And so you think about these kinds of situations, and what do they all have in common? They all have in common that though these people who are answering your deep question, they may have good intentions, all of them end up being unproductive. And so these people are at your level, and perhaps whether it be by lack of understanding or whatever, they cannot help you unravel what you are navigating, because what you are navigating is too complicated for them. But now consider this. For each of us who are navigating what seems like an incomprehensible situation, how good it is to know that despite your and my own incomprehensible situations, you serve a God who defies description. And so is therefore handling what doesn't make sense to you. This God who you can't make sense of is able to handle what make, does not make sense to you. What do you say to those who are dealing with unexplainable grief? What word of comfort do you give them? 
What do you do when you're trying to unravel a situation that just seems like a ball of yarn that won't unravel and you've been dealing with it for some time? What do you do when after intervention after intervention that you have staged with a family member and they don't heed the word that you are saying to their own destruction, what do you do? You remind yourself that these mysterious moments you find yourself in, despite them, you serve a God who goes beyond those mysterious circumstances, who is greater than all of these mysteries. Beyond your words, there is a better word from God the Father, and that comes down to us. So marvel at the incomprehensibility of your God who is fully capable of dealing with your own seemingly incomprehensible situations. See who he is apart from you, and then you'll see what he's done for you. And he's done it for his glory. So listen, we have spent so much time here on just verse one. I thought about cutting it off right there. But we must continue if we're going to make it all the way through Advent. So let's go more quickly now through these next four. The word was in the beginning with God. That's the second one. The eternality of this word. See, John includes these words here. Like in case you missed it in verse one, that he was in the beginning, he comes around and he reminds you again, he was in the beginning of God. You cannot miss it. He was co-equal with the Father. Third, this word also, though he exists in the beginning, creates all that which comes after. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. There's a phrase that some people have used called ex nihilo, from nothing. He creates from nothing. He doesn't need a little bit of mud. He doesn't need a little bit of dirt, a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and puts it in a pot. He speaks, and things are created. So you put that word on the right side of the line. He is on the side of the creator, and you and I are on the other side of that line. I like how when I read, I just chuckled to myself the first time this week when I was going through verse three at how almost awkward that statement is. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Like you could have just said, he made, he did it all. Yep, he did it. You could have said it, but he's so exhaustive, John is, to describe to you and I that every eyelash, every star, every snowflake, every person, every bird, every planet, it's his. He made it all. Genesis 1.1, going all the way through to the end of, of, of Genesis 1, tells us about how God said and things were created. Genesis 1 gives you a little bit of a picture that this word is the creative power. But when you pair Genesis 1 together, have you ever done this with John 1? You see that the Father is the one who speaks. It is the word which is spoken, and it is done who is the Spirit. Well, you know this when you include what Paul says later in his, his second epistle to Timothy, that the Spirit is the breath through which the word of God is spoken. Do you see? Your God is a triune Lord. And every act that he does, every person of God is involved in it, from the Father to the Son and to the Spirit. So the Word creates with his Father through the Spirit. Fourth thing here, in him was life, and the life was the light of men, the life of the Word. I, I love this. There's a, there's a word that that the 50 cent word that theologians have used called aseity, ase in himself, that God himself does not need anybody else to exist. 
He does not need him anything else to be more maximally alive. He is fully, maximally, exhaustively. He possesses life in himself. In fact, this same word is going to say later in John 14, 6, which so many of us know, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so he was the word spoken by God the Father at creation. And when God said on that first day of creation, let there be light and there was light. So this creative word, when it shines, it is the gift that makes our light, through his light, our lives possible. That's Genesis, but you put it together with John. And you see how John goes beyond Genesis with a fuller revelation. And it is this light which our life doesn't just, his life doesn't just create, it redeems. It creates and it redeems. The word doesn't just make things come into existence, it makes all things new. There's a reason why you get it at the end of a revelation where he says, behold, I am making all things new. He creates and thank goodness, no matter how much we mess it up, he can recreate. That's who our Lord is through this word. And I think of C.S. Lewis here, and he describes the decisions that we make in our own lives. And he talks about how you and I make little decisions every single day that lead to us being more heavenly or more hellish creatures by the end of our lives. Here's what he says. Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, chooses into something a little different than it was before, and taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices all your life long, you are slowly turning into the central thing, the central thing, into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. Be the one kind of creature is heaven. That's joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other kind of creature means madness and horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing into one state or the other. What severe words, right? And haven't you and I looked at people and we've seen the trajectory of their life. We saw them before, and then we saw them after. And we saw how 10 years or, or 20 years on one direction, making subtle little decisions all along the way, lead them into kind of a more hellish creature than what they were before. And we have sorrow over that. Or on the other hand, because you saw them live in that resurrection life, you see how they become more of a heavenly creature. I have seen my own college friends. I'm going to be Next summer, it will be 10 years since I graduated from college, right at the beginning, 10 years on. And here's what I have seen, that some of them, by who they chose to marry, what kind of decisions they made after that, how they put their family together, all of those things, you can see how 10 years on, they're either more like Christ or they are more like a hellish version of the worst version of themselves. And, and that's what I want to put to us. This word who has come by his light to give us life, gives us the choice this morning to go. Which decisions will you make that will say you are living in his resurrection life that has been accomplished for your sin 
or will you go the other way? Oh Lord, let me live in that resurrection life by your word so that by dwelling in your life, I would be maximally alive as well and regardless of my own circumstances. That's his life. But look lastly with me. His light. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. D.A. Carson, in his commentary on John 1.5, says, that is like the best planned ambiguity you could ever have, because it's not clear here, but when you start reading through the rest of John, you see that that light and how it works, it's not just creative, but it is also redemptive. Are we talking about creation only? No, we're talking about Genesis. We're talking in Genesis, or are we talking about the light of redemption? The answer is yes to both. And so as this has unfolded this morning, I have been very intentional to not betray what verse 1, 1 through 5 says and tell you about this word and tell you about this word in all these different ways, in these five different ways. But friends, don't ask me to not go to verse 14 and not go to verse 17 and not tell you about the identity of this word. Who is this word I've been telling you about all morning? I'll tell you. Jesus spoke to them. I'm in John 8, 12. You don't have to turn there. And he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Christ, God's word, has come in the flesh John 14, John 1, 14, and by his light has given you life so you could have eternal life. In a sentence, this is what Advent and this is what Christmas is all about. And so here's my prayer for you in these coming days. You would let this one who is incomprehensible deal with what seems incomprehensible to you that you would let his light shine in the midst of your own darkness and he will overcome it for you. And may he be your light when all other lights go out. May you live in this power of the word of God who has come. May you do it more fully in this coming week. Let me pray for us. Thank you for listening to Bethesda Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can find us online by visiting our website at www.bethesdahuron.com or you can find us on Facebook and YouTube at Bethesda Huron. 